It is an absolute delight to be here at 18 Hook Avenue uh, for this wonderful facility, which is possible for us to meet in person. And uh, having been one who has been online in lots of services, uh, I uh, have a special place for those who are gathering with us in that way as well. Um, I, uh, my, my goal in these next few minutes is to continue in the series that you've been doing on the Gospel of Matthew. Let's just uh, continue in prayer before we, we launch into Matthew 5. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, if I move this here, is that okay? Yep. Try not to. Thanks, Ian. Well, it, you may well be aware, uh, but for those who perhaps this is your first time with Christ the King, uh, this church uh, has a, a wonderful tradition of faithful study of the scriptures week by week. Uh, and uh, a while ago, entered into a series which began for the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. Uh, and we're now into what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And a number of weeks have already gone on this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Glenn uh, preached on Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Uh, and uh, then last week, I believe Roger spoke on uh, three uh, sort of test cases or examples that flowed from, from that Matthew 5, 17 to 20. So for text, the two sections that we're thinking of is Matthew 5, 33 to 41, or 42, is it? Uh, 42. Uh, the first one, it's again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not bear false witness but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Jesus said, do not take an oath at all. And later he said, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And the second section uh, is he said, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is, is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. These are pretty famous portion of scripture. Lots of people who know no scripture at all, know about turning the cheek, etc. Uh, and, and, uh, and so it is that uh, we find ourselves right at the heart of this great portion of, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, of course, is the king. He's the anointed one. And so in this kind of manifesto that we call the Sermon on the Mount, he is sharing what new life under his rule looks like. And uh, it's interesting, for instance, I was thinking this week about uh, the uh, Thessalonian church, a young church that uh, Paul uh, is recorded in Acts 17, the beginning of that church. And immediately they got themselves into trouble. And it says, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, 
Jesus. Well, if you're going to be criticized as a church, and of course with the name Christ the King, what better way to be criticized is to say they talk and act if there is someone that they are to live under his rule and his name is Jesus, Jesus the Christ. Well, in, as I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, Glenn preached on Matthew 5, 17 to 20, which is a particularly critical portion because as you make your way through the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know how you feel or have felt, but I find it pretty overwhelming. Uh, I'm old enough that I would remember uh, a movement that happened in North America that was pretty big at the time. It was called Basic Youth Conflicts. Uh, and you would go and, and the, the, the main speaker would, with an overhead projector, in those days that was a deal, uh, and 30,000 people and there would be other venues and he would make his way through, uh, through teaching on new life in Christ. Well, a lot of people were very excited about it, but for me, uh, I kind of staggered out. It seemed like teaching after teaching just laid another layer of weight on my shoulders. I can't do what I know, let alone what I'm still now learning. And, and uh, I don't know if that, that, that's, that's a, an admission of my failure. There was a famous thing that he had, which was people would wear buttons. And the buttons would have P B P W M G I N F W M Y. And what that stood for was, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. But even although that encouraging sentence was there, uh, I found myself, we, uh, whenever we went through that, as finding it heavy. And it's very possible that you're finding the Sermon on the Mount. The fact that even what you do know about the law uh, is heavy, but Jesus takes it another level, doesn't he? He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, Jesus said, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and he knew what he was talking about because he was about to talk about six examples of where the law had lost its force by the tradition re relaxing things in one way or another. Whoever relaxes one of, these, of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And now here's the crunch. He said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a big surprise. And you've been hearing about that week by week, uh, because in fact, the scribes and Pharisees were known for their exhaustive following the law and having it broken down in all sorts of uh, subsections of subsections of subsections, all of which they prided themselves on the fact that they were fulfilling them right to the end. And yet Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness is better than that, you can't enter the kingdom. You, you have no place to, in the kingdom of heaven. Well, I want to suggest to you that for people like me who could be overwhelmed, 
for people who, uh, they're actually, the Sermon on the Mount is very good news. And so even as we go to two more examples today, I want to suggest to you there are three reasons why I believe it's good news. First of all, Jesus has given a huge endorsement of the Bible. He's saying, I didn't come to break it down or dis destroy it or undermine it. So when he said, you have heard it said this, but I say, he's actually endorsing the Bible. He's fulfilling the Bible. Uh, now, yes, there are times where uh, in terms of the fulfillment, uh, the ceremonial law, for instance, of the sacrificial system and so on, in his one sacrifice made once for all, he has removed the need for sacrifices. So some of the things change. But in terms of the core, the moral imperatives of the, of the law, he's not only come to fulfill them, but to call us to, to deeply abide by them. Huge endorsement of the Bible. It's an interesting thing that, in fact, uh, the, the scriptures could ultimately be twisted and misunderstood and actually undermined, and that's what typically happens. So in Mark 7, 9 to 13, if you want to keep record of that, Jesus says, Jesus said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to, to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you, you would have gained from me is Corban, that is the technical term for given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his mother or father, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And so these kind of things were what was going on, that in fact they were giving the evidence of, of adherence and compliance to the word of God, but actually legalists are very good at doing that, and yet the heart of it, the spirit of it, the reality of it being more and more eroded so that finally in this case, they're not only not doing it, they're not doing it at all. In fact, they're, they're insulating themselves from having to care for their parents by calling it Corbin. Jesus said, and this is an interesting thing, when we get to Matthew 11, it'll be a few weeks, I guess, before we, you get there. But in Matthew 11, speaking of John the Baptist, he said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So not only is there the endorsement of the Bible, which I believe is good news. So when you, you can rest, you can know that the scriptures are there and they're trustworthy. And Jesus himself, the very son of God, has submitted himself to them and is committed to fulfilling them. That's big. God is not a man that he should lie, it says in Numbers 23. But more than that, the, the scriptures, in fact, drive us to the conclusion, as Jesus said, that even the best of the best, and he's talking about John the Baptist, in and of himself, could not be part of the, he's the least in the kingdom. Why? Because even John the Baptist needed a savior. And so the good news of the Sermon on the Mount is that it exposes us to the reality of our need for a savior. Paul talks about it as a schoolmaster. 
It drives us to our knees and drives us to humbly recognize we need a savior. You can't do it. You can't make it. You can't get there. And more than that, it also it makes clear that in fact, the Holy Spirit, who according to the new covenant, not only sprinkles us clean, but in fact, gives us a new heart. And thirdly, what is really good news about the, about the Gospels, and I was just thinking in terms of the needing of a Savior, that in fact, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, his great letter, he gets to the point where he says that every mouth should be stopped. There's this picture of a cork stopping all the excuses and all the mitigating circumstances, which we feel might put us in special standing in terms of the law. And he says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The good news of the Sermon on the Mount is it exposes us to a need for a savior. And of course, Jesus is that savior. But thirdly, it also exposes us to the fact that he never lowers the bar of what he calls us to. You would think he would say, well, you know, I know you're sinners and your capability of living to the law is, is limited, in fact, not much at all. Therefore, we're going to bring things down to a level that you might be able to adhere to. He doesn't do that. He make, keeps the law 100%. Nothing short of holiness. Nothing short of being like Jesus himself. And so that is the good news, because in fact, what it means is the Savior not only forgives us, but the Savior comes to transform our lives and to change us from one degree of glory to another. And then ultimately, he's going to make us to be like Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given us, John says, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who, has, has, who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. That's 1 John 3, 1 to 3. And so the good news of the Sermon on the Mount is that not only does the Bible stand, not only does it drive us to our need for a Savior, but it also shows us that rather than leaving us in our sinfulness and unworthiness, he gives us a standing of righteousness, and then in real time, he begins to change us. And ultimately, we're going to be changed fully. He'll complete the job. I find those things change everything in terms of my capacity to receive and enjoy and recognize the, the good news of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, so we get to, there are two passages, 33 to 37 and 38 to 42. First. 33 to 37, about oaths. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not bear false witness, swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the foot footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I believe 
The issue here that Jesus is addressing is not so much the failing of oaths, though that's what he's addressing. But what he's talking about is that, that he is calling us as his followers to be people of truth. Truth in our heart and truth that comes from our lips. So that when we make a statement or a promise, it's trustworthy because we will are committed to, to following through. So the God is looking for people who are truth tellers and like he is. It's an interesting thing that the Apostle Paul, incidentally, I would like to suggest to you that if you wonder the impact of the Sermon on the Mount, as you read the epistles of Paul and Peter and John, you'll discover that in fact their thinking of what life in Christ looks like is framed, I would submit to you, entirely by the Sermon on the Mount. It actually causes it to be there so that, for instance, when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and giving an ex a reason as to why he had been unable to come to them, he said this, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way. This is 2 Corinthians 1, 15 to 22. Was I vacillating, verse 17, when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Salvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. I love this passage. I love it that in fact he's quoting from Jesus, and he's making it clear that it was never their intention to be double-minded or to vacillate, on the one hand say this, but actually kind of mean that. In fact, what he's saying is it's really important that our yes is absolutely yes and our no is no, because that's the way God is, and that's so important because all the promises of God, he said in verse 20, are find their two thumbs up, their yes in Jesus. If God was not faithful, if God was not yes when he says yes, and no when he was not no, then we would be in big trouble. But he is, and he calls us to that as well. So the problem is not that oaths in and of themselves are the problem. In fact, God himself in Hebrews, it wasn't that long ago that Christ the King was making its way through that great epistle and the pastor's sermon, and he says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, this is Hebrews 6, 16, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast 
to the hope set before us. In other words, God knowing we needed a lot of encouragement to rest entirely in the promise, used an oath. But the oaths which Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 uh, are in fact not because the speaker is faithful, but in fact because the speaker is potentially looking for wiggle room to find a way to opt out and maybe using a formula where God's name is not used and therefore it's kind of like a legal document which has reams of pages and you failed to initial this one and therefore it all becomes void. This was the kind of game that was being played. And so Jesus is saying, don't get involved in all that stuff. This is not what you need. What you need to be is a truth teller who has truth in your heart. And when you say yes, you mean yes. And when you say no, you mean no. We need a work of the Lord in our hearts to make us to be people of truth, where in fact we are trustworthy so that when we speak, we follow through. The second section is, is on what you might call retaliation. And this is incredibly challenging. You have heard it said, Jesus says, an eye for an eye and a truth and a tooth for a tooth. A truth for a truth. Sorry, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. Now, there's some things that we should say uh, in terms of, of, of what, first of all, uh, Jesus is referring to uh, Deuteronomy 19, uh, and uh, he is, which is, which is where there's a call for, uh, for um, and I'm just going to turn to it. And the rest of you shall hear, and it, it says this, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest you shall hear and shall fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, hand, foot for foot. That's Deuteronomy 19, 18 to 21. So, so Jesus is quoting a portion which is about the court system. It's about a society which is committed to protecting uh, vulnerable people, protecting folks and calling to account those who, who, who uh, have violated this. This is the job of the courts, and this is a judge that he's talking to. But what Jesus is talking about in, in his call is that this is for the courts to do, and it's not an argument against defending yourself. It's not an argument against uh, or uh, allowing for abuse to run riot. It's what it is about. It's about the fact that it's calling you as an individual and in your heart to be a person who does not re retaliate in kind. 
does not take personally the responsibility to make even whatever wrong was done to you. And this is an extraordinary call of Jesus, which he gives. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity for the evil one. <clears throat> Paul meditated a lot on the Sermon on the Mount, and he, I think he meditated on 38 to 42 a lot as to what that meant. Listen to what he says in Romans 12, which is an extraordinary uh, clarification and, and meditation on the Sermon on the Mount. Let love be genuine, Paul says. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is Romans 12 starting in verse 9. Rejoice in hope, verse 12. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Here it is. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. This is turning the cheek. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay you, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I submit to you that this is Paul's meditation as a result of Matthew 5, 38 to 42. The issue is personally in your heart. It what you, it's what you do with, with the wrong which is done to you. Will you harbor it? Will you re respond in kind? Will there be an escalation of tension and potentially of violence? Or will you operate in love? And will you allow where there is requirement of the law to be involved than allowing the law to do its work, but you in your heart showing love? Peter said, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was the perfect example of, of exactly what he was saying in Matthew 5, 38 to 42. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? First of all, I think we need to understand that this is not a pep talk, which is given to get you, come on, try a little harder, obey the law a little better, come on, come on. Uh, in fact, Paul, in his great letter again to the Romans, in that section, Romans 7, into the beginning of and, and 8, makes it clear that that kind of thinking, I'm going to do it if it's the last thing I do, uh, is actually uh, doomed to failure. And so make no mistake, when we talk about the going deeper in the law, fulfilling the law of Christ, it is something which requires of us not more effort, but more running to the Lord Jesus. So it is that, for instance, he said in Romans 7, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had been for the law, I would not have known sin. Later he says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me through it and killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is my capacity to live out the law. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Later he says, so, actually I wanted verse 8 to say, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all manner of co covetousness. You shall not cover it. And Paul said, as soon as I heard it, it produced in me all manner of covetousness. So the effort to obey the law in and of itself is, is one which wisely, ultimately, he says, so I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of, of death? But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is Romans 8.1. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned in sin in the flesh. Listen to this verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh 
but according to the Spirit. So it's not, come on, come on, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Here goes. But in fact, it is looking to the Lord Jesus, who's Savior and Lord, who by the Holy Spirit sprinkles us clean and then enables, he works out in us the just requirements of the law that we were incapable of doing on our own. What we need, friends, is the transformation of the Holy Spirit. And the good news is, as we thought at the beginning of this time, is the Lord is committed to, to completing what he's begun. Dear friends, is it not wonderful that God has not only exposed us to a high standard, which he's never given ground on, but in fact, he's given us a means for forgiveness and now he's working it out us. And I love that in 2 Corinthians 3, where it says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But all, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit as we are exposed to the Sermon on the Mount. And so we rejoice in the fact that one day he will bring the completion what he's begun and it begins by running to him as savior let me just pray lord jesus we thank you that you came not to destroy or break down or diminish the law but in fact to fulfill it in every aspect and we thank you for your faithful teaching which takes us deeper and brings us not only to the actual actions of our bodies, but the intentions of our hearts. And we recognize we need a, a miracle of your grace. The new transformation of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, which talks about a new covenant, giving us a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. We invite you to do that in our lives, to not only sprinkle us clean, but to work in us your good purposes. So these high things that we long for would become a reality more and more. We would be people of truth. And that when we speak, our yes would be yes, and our no would be no. And that when we are wronged, we would not respond in kind, but we would respond in love. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.